Today, I had the pleasure of speaking and learning from Randall O'Toole. He's an American policy analyst. He's written several books, hundreds of policy papers, and he provides solutions from a free market perspective to various problems. He runs a popular blog called The Anti-Planner, and he's featured in several debates on urbanism, environmentalism, government policy. But today, I was curious about exploring his biography and discussing his memoir, The Education of an Iconoclast. We discussed his shift from forestry to economics, his 50-year career, his thoughts on light rail and other transportation, housing solutions, bus, Hawaii, top-down urban planning, Houston as a model for development, and other topics. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hi, good afternoon, Randall. Can you hear me now? I can. Perfect. Thank you for your punctuality and uh, for rearranging the meeting. I know you're a busy man. Great. <laughs> well, Randall, I just um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've been reading your blog on and off for years. And this morning I was biking. I live in Oahu, so I think that's important. Oh, I hate biking in Oahu. It is so awful. I bike every day about 10, 12 miles to drop off my daughter back and forth. So I was listening to some of your debates you've had with people, mainly James Kunstler. And obviously I love biking. So I wanted to start with biking and I wanted to, there's so many debates you have online about the pros and cons of government planning and light rail, but I really wanted to start with your relationship with cycling and how that influenced your political evolution. Because I read most of your excellent biography, your memoirs, and I just wanted to understand how you, how that cycling framework has influenced your analysis of cities and urban planning and design and everything. Well, it's funny. One of the very first transportation issues I got involved in. It wasn't the first, but it was early. It was about 1975. Um, I uh, was invited to attend meetings of the Bicycle Advisory Committee for the city of Portland. And I was an ardent cyclist. I didn't even have a driver's license at the time. Uh, and I worked in downtown Portland, and I lived in the east side, which if you know Portland means you have to cross the river. And Portland has, I think, 11 bridges now. Only nine of them are open to vehicles, and only seven of them are open to bicycles. And the lanes tended to be pretty narrow, uh, and there was a lot of on and off ramps on some of those bridges. And so I went to the advisory committee, and I said, you need to put some curb cuts to make it easy for bicycles to use the sidewalks so that they aren't blocking your narrow lanes. A couple of the bridges, the lanes were only like 12 feet wide and there was no path, no ability to pass because there were structures on both sides of the lanes. Um, and so if you were bicycling, it was kind of scary to have cars pass you in this narrow lane. Uh, if you were in the lane, now there was a sidewalk, but you couldn't get up to the sidewalk without stopping and getting off your bike and lifting the bike onto the sidewalk and so on. So I said, put in curb cuts. And the city said, oh, we can't do that. It would be too dangerous when the bicycles come off. The, bi the cars wouldn't expect it. and They'd hit the bicyclists. And two years later, they put in all the curb cuts in all the places I recommended. So I stopped going to those advisory committee meetings, but uh, 
they ended up doing what I recommended. Now, it wasn't because I had recommended it. It was because that was the logical place to put it. Since then, I've occasionally participated in bicycle proposals. Uh, but today, what I'm seeing is that the bicycle community has been captured by the anti-automobile community. Even though at the time I didn't have a driver's license, I wasn't anti-automobile. I was a follower of John Forrester. John Forrester wrote a book called, <clears throat> what was it called? Anyway, he argued that bicycles were vehicles. By law, they were treated as vehicles. And so they should act like vehicles. They should uh, assert themselves when they were in very narrow lanes and make sure that cars knew they were there, occupy the whole lane if necessary. But usually, they should try to be a part of the flow of traffic and not expect any special lanes or anything like that. In fact, he argued that bicycle lanes actually made uh, traffic more dangerous. What's happened since then is that we've had movements, pro-bicycle movements that have made bicyclists feel like they are superior to other vehicles in traffic. There was a, a movement called critical mass where hundreds or thousands of bicyclists would go at rush hour one day a week and occupy some entire streets that were, you know, vital streets for people getting home and disrupt traffic as much as possible. And the bicyclists who were attending these critical mass events were told, you were superior, cars are inferior, you, you should have the right of way over cars at all times. And what we saw happen was bicyclists then would go away from these critical mass meetings and be convinced that they were superior and uh, they would insist on occupying right away and and asserting right away when they didn't actually have it and they would get hit more frequently. And we've seen an increase in bicycle fatalities in recent years. And I think that's partly because critical mass has warped the perspective of bicyclists. And so we've had cities adopt plans that they claim are to make streets safer. They call them vision zero plans. And these Vision Zero plans often call for taking a four-lane street, in other words, a major collector street that's moving a lot of traffic, and take away one of the lanes from the automobiles and make it into bike lanes. So you have a 12-foot lane turned into two six-foot lanes, one for bicyclists going one way and one for bicyclists going the other way. That leaves three lanes. One of the lanes would be used for left turns and the other two lanes would be for traffic in the two different directions. Now, that kind of uh, project is designed to safeguard bicyclists from being hit from behind by cars. Well, on average, about 3% of bicycle fatalities consist of people being hit from behind by cars. Now, I'm a cyclist. I know you're always nervous about getting hit from behind, but the cars see you. They know you're there. And so they watch out. They don't want to hit you any more than you want to be hit by them. So only 3% of fatalities are being hit by cars from behind. Half of all fatalities take place at intersections where the bike lanes disappear. So 
we're safeguarding against a very rare event and not doing anything about the kind of event that is responsible for half of all bicycle fatalities. By putting in the bike lanes, we're sending a message to bicyclists that it's safe to ride on this busy street. So we get an increase in bicyclists riding on these busy streets, which means that we get an increase in bicyclists crossing busy intersections and getting hit. So we're making bicycling more dangerous by creating an illusion of bicycle safety that isn't real. I would have done something completely different. I would have taken local streets that are parallel to those busy streets and turned them into bicycle boulevards, which means you remove as many stop signs as you can so that you can have through bicycle traffic with minimal stops, but put in a few little concrete barriers to discourage cars from using those streets as through streets. So you now have streets that are open to cars for local traffic and open to bicycles for through traffic. And I've used bicycle boulevards in Berkeley, in Portland, and other streets, and they're a, they feel a lot safer, they are a lot safer, and they don't cause the imposition on cars that happens when you take lanes away from cars. So that's my attitude towards cycling, which is that Bicycles are vehicles. Cars are vehicles. One should not be superior to the other. In certain situations, cars have the right of way. In other situations, bicycles have the right of way. The safest thing we can do is separate them when we can by putting bicycles on bicycle boulevards instead of by asserting that bicycles are safe by putting them into bike lanes when actually we're making it more dangerous. So, Randall, you mentioned that you don't like biking in Oahu. What specifically do you not like about biking here? Well, you've got a lot of busy streets. Their lanes are narrow. There's often not bike lanes. Where you do have bike lanes, they have strangely put two-way traffic in one bike lane. And so you have a risk of hitting other bicyclists, but you also have the risk that not only are you do you have bicyclists going with the flow of traffic, you have bicyclists going in the opposite flow from traffic. And so you're compounding the risk of not just having the risk of getting hit from behind, but having the risk of a head-on collision. And uh, I don't see that as particularly safe. I've bicycled. The last time I got hit by a truck was when I was bicycling in Maui on a bike lane. And the truck was turning left into into a driveway. I was bicycling at about 20 miles an hour. There was a lot of traffic, and the truck didn't see me before it turned. And I didn't see it until the last second and got hit by this truck. So, again, it's another situation where bike lanes do not increase safety. Would have been better if there had been a local bicycle boulevard. And I think you could probably put some bicycle boulevards in Oahu, but they haven't done that. Instead, they've uh, mostly bicycles are then for themselves. And, and there are those few bike lanes downtown, which I didn't find particularly well designed. Randall, I should have asked first, but for people who aren't familiar with your work, um, I'm a fan of Anti-Planner. But how do you describe yourself? What's a quick summary of your actual work in education and framework? Well, the funny thing is my training is as a forester. 
And I spent the first 20, of my, 20 years of my career as a forest policy analyst. I was analyzing uh, government plans, Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, state forest plans for mainly public lands, but also in some cases for private lands. That analysis carried over. I discovered that, well, what happened was, is uh, I was challenging the federal timber sale levels. They were selling a lot of timber, losing money at most of it, doing a lot of environmental damage. And in a nutshell, uh, we won. Uh, federal timber sale levels declined by 85% between 1990 and 2000. And it was a great deal of that was due to my work. Part of it was due to the spotted owl, which I didn't really work on. But most of it was due to my work, which showed that, which persuaded the Forest Service that they were uh, cutting too much timber and that they shouldn't be doing so much. And so not Having won that battle, I looked around for other battles to fight and came across battles that were going on with land use and transportation in the city I lived in, which was uh, the Portland urban area, and extended that to found out that I was uh, dealing with a movement that was a national movement that was trying to force people to stop driving, trying to force more people to live in apartments instead of single family homes. Uh, and since 98% of the travel we do in cities is driving, and since uh, 80% of Americans want to live in single-family homes, it seemed to me that even though I was a bicyclist, I have to realize that most people don't bicycle, most people drive. And even though I have lived in apartments, I have to realize that most people want to live in single-family homes, so I can't, shouldn't be imposing my preferences on other people through some kind of planning process. So I began to challenge uh, city plans, urban area plans, state plans, transportation plans, land use plans. And I discovered that there's a lot of similarities between forest planning and urban planning. Basically, the forest planners think that there's these inanimate objects out in forests that they can make do whatever they want. I actually found a forest plan that proposed they were going to grow trees to be 650 feet tall when the tallest trees in the world are less than 400 feet tall. Forest planners just thought they could imagine anything they want and it would happen. And urban planners think that there's these inanimate objects in cities that they can make do whatever they want. And those inanimate objects are people. And they think, that well, they can just force more people to live in uh, apartments, they can just force more people to take transit or to bicycle instead of drive. And to me, those are very uh, unappealing ideas. And whether you're a libertarian or not, you don't really like to think that somebody is trying to manipulate you to force you to use a much more expensive way of transportation or to use a, to live in a much less desirable home that also happens to be more expensive than the single-family home you might be living in now. When did that shift? I think in your memoirs, you started taking economics classes, or was it when you were learning first computer modeling? When did that shift come in understanding reality versus imposed reality? The funny thing was that when I was working on forest issues, I was making quite a name for myself. Uh, one Forest Service official told a reporter that Randall O'Toole has had more impact on the Forest Service than all the environmental groups combined. And so I would get speaking invitations. And 
a professor at the University of Oregon Department of Urban Planning asked me to come and speak to his class. And I did. At the time, I had a bachelor's degree in forestry. And he said, you should, you should go to graduate school. Uh, you should go to graduate school in our urban and regional planning department. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in urban planning. I'm interested in forest issues. He said, well, we also do regional planning. So, uh, you know, they offered me, uh, uh, you know, funding support and things like that. So I said, okay. So I took the first term's worth of courses in urban planning. And I looked around and I said, you know, I shouldn't just take courses in one field. Uh, I should also learn some other fields. And there was a course in urban economics. It was also a graduate course. And what I discovered was the urban economists didn't make any assumptions about cities. Instead, they looked at the data, and then they tried to build models for how the city works. They compared the model against the data. But if the model didn't produce the data that they knew was real, they modified the model. And then they compared that against the data, and they kept modifying it until they got a model that came out pretty close to how the cities actually were working. So then they were able to ask questions of the model, like, what happens if you draw an urban growth boundary around the city and force the density of the city to get higher, force higher densities, force more people to live in apartments instead of single-family homes? Will that result in more congestion or less? Well, the model clearly showed that although some people would respond to density by taking transit, most people would keep driving and the congestion would just get worse because you'd have more people driving per square mile of land because you'd have higher population densities. Well, in the urban planning courses, they asked the same question. And instead of building a model or looking at any data at all, they just said, well, I think if they were higher density, people would ride transit more, and so there'd be less congestion. And everybody in the class agreed. There were two urban planning professors in this class, and they agreed. And I said, no, the actual economic data show that the congestion would get worse. And we went back and forth, and finally one of the professors said, well, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And that was the day I knew I wasn't going to become a planner. I was going to become an economist. So I stopped taking urban planning courses, and I started taking economics courses and took a whole slew of those courses and still spent most of my time working on forest issues. And so I ended up not earning any degrees. But uh, I think more like an economist than, I, than like a planner. In fact, I think more like an economist than a forester. Foresters have a way of thinking. Geographers have a way of thinking. Landscape architects have a way of thinking. Economists and planners have ways of thinking. And I think like an economist. And so sometimes I'll call myself an economist, even though I don't have a degree in economics. Sometimes I call myself a policy analyst, even though I don't have a degree in policy analysis. My degree is in forestry. All of these things are alike in the sense that these planners, and basically what I've spent my career doing is critiquing government plans these planners think that they can impose things on the land or impose things on people that uh, people don't want to have imposed on them. Going back to where does that iconoclastic mindset emerge from? I'm curious, and how do you keep defending it? 
Why don't you go with the flow of the consensus? Well, it's funny. I've always been an iconoclast. You know, I drew my hair down well below my shoulders when I was in high school, which made the high school's vice principals hate me. Uh, I, you know, would <clears throat> leave school to go to anti-Vietnam protest marches or civil rights protest marches. I would skip school to go to environmental events and eventually started an environmental group in my high school. Uh, when Earth Day came along, that persuaded me that I should work on environmental issues. So I went to a forestry school where they taught people how to grow trees so they could cut them down and cut them up into forest products. And here I was, uh, not being real obvious about it, but being somewhat obvious because I was spending my summers doing internships working on how to stop the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management and other agencies from cutting down trees. And so I uh, was always out of step, and that seems to uh, have continued throughout my career. One interesting example lately has been bus rapid transit. I spent a lot of the last 30 years of my career critiquing urban transit systems, and we'd see cities like Portland and Seattle spending billions of dollars on rail transit and Honolulu now spending billions of dollars on rail transit. And I'd say, wait a minute, bus rapid transit can move more people faster uh, to more destinations than rail transit. So instead of rail transit, we should be looking at bus rapid transit. And now we're seeing cities say, okay, We'll do bus rapid transit, but we won't do the kind of bus rapid transit Randall O'Toole was talking about, which was running buses on ordinary city streets, that, but the buses only stop once per mile, like a rail line. And so they're, they're faster because they don't have to stop as frequently, and they'll be more attractive to passengers, both because they're faster and they're more frequent. Instead of just doing that, we're going to build special lanes for the buses. We're going to build fancy stops for all the buses, fancy stations for all the buses to stop at. And so instead of spending a million dollars a mile on bus rapid transit, we're going to spend $50 million a mile or $100 million a mile on bus rapid transit. We're going to make bus rapid transit as expensive as building rail transit. Well, I've lost interest in that. And so I'm now no longer an enthusiast behind bus rapid transit. Instead, the kind of transit I've been advocating is express buses, nonstop buses throughout urban areas uh, that uh, will take people from lots of origins to lots of different destinations with no intervening stops. So instead of going at 20 miles an hour, which is the average speed for bus rapid transit, or 11 miles an hour, which is the average speed for local buses, they'll go at 50 miles or 55 miles an hour because they'll be going on freeways for most of their routes. Nobody else in the transit industry is thinking about this. So uh, I guess I'm ahead of my time because I was talking about bus rapid transit before they were. And now I'm talking about express buses before anybody else. We'll see if they. Randall, these are like the buses. Only in, the, the Bolt bus in Los Angeles to San Francisco or the Chinatown buses in New York to Boston or D.C. or those type of private industry buses. Well, those, those are intercity buses. And the inter interesting thing about the intercity bus industry is it used to be tied down by bus stations. You know, these expensive bus stations in every city. 
and they'd have baggage clerks and they'd have ticket salesmen and stuff like that. And the, the kind of buses you're mentioning, they've abandoned all that. They go from curbside to curbside, which means they don't have to pay for a station. They let the passengers load their own luggage, which means they don't have to pay for baggage handlers. You buy your tickets on the internet, which means they don't have to pay for ticket agents. And while the intercity, and that led to a huge resurgence in intercity buses. Intercity buses were on the decline from about 1960 to 2005. And you started seeing these infrastructure light buses, mega bus and bolt bus and so on. And suddenly bus ridership, intercity bus ridership is increasing. So we look at the transit industry and instead of saying, Let's see, we've got this great infrastructure out there. It's called roads and streets. Let's run our transit on roads and streets. Instead of saying that, they're saying, let's build a lot of infrastructure that's dedicated solely to urban transit. And uh, it's going to be really expensive infrastructure. We can build a lane mile of road for half a million dollars, but we're going to spend $100 million building a mile of rail or $200 million. There are some rail projects now that are costing $500 million per mile of rail. That's a billion dollars a route mile because we have a mile of rail going in each direction. So we're spending phenomenal amounts of money for something that's only going to be used by a few transit riders because transit only carries half a percent of all passenger travel in this country. It, it Before the pandemic, it was 1%, but now it's down to uh, about a half a percent. Maybe it'll get get its way back up to three-fourths of a percent. We're spending billions and billions of dollars on this tiny percentage of travels. Well, with buses, we could attract the same number of people, move the same number of people, probably more people for a lot less money because the buses can go faster. I mean, even New York City subways average less than 30 miles an hour, and buses on freeways can average 60 miles an hour. So, Randall, here in Hawaii, you know about the new heart. I'd love to just a quick summary of your critiques of that system and why you think it was built. Well, of course, when they first planned it, they were t- they said it was going to cost less than $3 billion. And, and in fact, the original proponents said that fares were going to pay not only all the operating costs, but they were going to pay part, if not all, of the capital cost. Well, the costs have exploded to well over $9 billion. The Federal Transit Administration thinks that by the time they're done, it's going to be $12 billion. And uh, they've run out of money. So they're saying we're not going to be able to finish it all the way immediately. Eventually, we might get enough money to be able to finish it, but not right away. And the ridership numbers they were projecting were probably way too high. Certainly, they're not getting anything close to what they were expecting with the part that's opened. That's partly because it's not finished. Um, and you look at it, and all it really is is a bus route. They could have done exactly the same thing with buses. They could have um, uh, gone just as fast, if not faster, with buses. They persuaded people to go for it because they said it's going to relieve congestion. Well, it's not going to relieve congestion. In fact, their own data show that congestion is going to increase near the transit stops because people were going to be slowing down and stopping there to pick up and drop off uh, rail riders uh, instead of people walking to the rail stations. They were going to drive to the rail stations and have somebody 
drive them and drop them off. So their own data showed it was going to increase congestion, but they convinced people it was going to reduce congestion. And The Onion had a great story many years ago saying, 98% of American commuters want other people to ride transit so that they can drive in less congested traffic. So transit agencies in Honolulu, in Los Angeles, in San Diego, and cities all over the country have convinced people to go for these extremely expensive transit projects by claiming that it was going to reduce congestion when, in fact, uh, in almost every case, it made congestion worse. And, you know, we made these critiques of the Honolulu uh, rail project before they began, before it began. Uh, The city council ignored us. Uh, They were heavily pressured by the unions that wanted jobs for constructing it. Um, when the construction is done, there aren't going to be any jobs. The transit is automated. There aren't going to be jobs for drivers. There's going to be some maintenance jobs. There's going to be a tiny fraction of the jobs that uh, they're getting for building. And so it's just basically unions and contractors wanted to build it. They threw money into the right campaign funds. And so uh, politicians supported it. So we end up seeing and we're seeing this all over the country. We're seeing it for high-speed rail. We're seeing it for Amtrak. Uh, we're seeing this, uh, what's called the Iron Triangle, which is uh, people who make money from from uh, tax dollars in one corner of the triangle, the bureaucracies at another corner of the triangle, and the politicians at a third corner of the triangle. The politicians appropriate money to the bureaucracies, which then give it out to the contractors who spend it and then who then take some of that money and use it for campaign contributions to the politician. Very hard to break that triangle. Uh, We have found that if we can put, if a measure goes on the ballot and we can spend 10% as much money as a proponent spend, we can usually reach enough voters to convince them to vote it down. But if we only reach 5 if only spend 5% as much as the proponents spend, it usually passes because, you know, they drown us out with their claims that it's going to relieve congestion and is education. It's, you know, convincing people to be skeptical of government. You know, we've got this huge movement now that's skeptical of capitalism. And they don't realize that a lot of government is really crony capitalism where people take money from government to build up their companies, you know, you've got companies that exclusively live off of government spending. And you see this in transportation. We've got all these engineering and consulting firms like Parsons Brinkerhoff, which has now got a new name, WSR and HDR and a bunch of other companies. And they overtly lie. Um, HDR has made a specialty of going to cities and saying, if you build rail transit, you're going to get billions of dollars of economic development. Look what happened in Portland. They built a light rail line and they got a billion dollars of economic development. They don't mention the fact that Portland got zero economic development after it built the light rail. So 10 years after it opened the line, it threw a billion dollars in subsidies to developers along the light rail line. And those developers then put in new developments and they said, look, we built the light rail line. We got all this new development. Well, you didn't mention the billion dollars in subsidies. 
where you didn't put in the subsidies, you got no new development. Where you did put in the subsidies and you didn't have light rail, you got new development. It was the subsidies, not the light rail, that got the new development. But HDR lies to people and claims it's the rail transit that got the new development. They even hired uh, a city councilor in Portland, the person who had originally proposed these subsidies, and he traveled around the country telling cities that they'd put in the, the rail lines and they got all this development. He never mentioned the subsidies that he himself had initiated on the Portland City Council. So uh, you need to educate people, It's in, and we need a skeptical public. We need people in the public who aren't going to automatically assume that government is good and that private operations, private companies are automatically bad. Private corporations aren't necessarily purely good, but given a choice between a public agency and a private corporation, I would rather have the private corporation because I can at least decide not to patronize that company if I don't like their products or what they do. Whereas when the government does something, I'm stuck with uh, having to pay taxes for it, whether I like it or not. What are your uh, thoughts on new urbanism? I think you've had debates with uh, James Kunstler. And have any of your thoughts changed or evolved? Or Yes, they've evolved. Um, uh, I originally didn't like it, and now I hate it. I originally thought new urbanism was a little misguided. Now I think they're delusional, totally delusional. New urbanism is the idea that people will be happier if they live within walking distance of shops, of coffee shops, of stores, of transit stops, maybe even within walking distance of work. That people will be healthier if they're within walking distance. And the way to do that is to build a lot more apartments because that's the way to get the density you need to get people living within walking distance. And so new urbanism effectively supported the urban planners who are trying to have urban growth boundaries around cities and densify the cities and increase the apartments. And if you look at the history of new urbanism, it basically came in the 1990s from a group of architects and planners who read a book that was published in about 1960 called the Death and Life of Great American Cities. The book was written by uh, uh, an architecture critic at the time named Jane Jacobs. She lived in Greenwich Village, New York City. At the time, the urban planning profession believed that high-density apartments were bad. Most of the Big cities like New York and Chicago and Boston had a bunch of apartments that had been built before the turn of the 20th century. They were like four and five and six stories tall. They didn't have any elevators. You had to climb up all these staircases if you lived on an upper floor to get to your apartment. At the time they were built, elevators had just been invented or they hadn't even been invented yet. The high-speed electric elevators dated to 1891. So a lot of these were built before the elevators. They were built for people who couldn't afford to ride a streetcar to work. And so they were, you had a apartment, blocks of apartments that had like 5,000 people living per block. And they were within walking distance of blocks of factories that had like 3,000, 4,000 people per block of factories. So people would walk from the apartment to the factory. Well, uh, after the turn of the 20th century, we got Henry Ford developed the 
uh, moving assembly line for, for automobiles. And he made automobiles so cheap that everybody who's living in those apartments could afford to buy them. And uh, the moving assembly line uh, required so much land that all the factories moved out of downtowns into the suburbs. So the jobs moved to the suburbs. The people who bought cars, they, a lot of them moved to the suburbs. So they could live in single-family homes instead of these apartments. And after World War II, we could see these apartments were not very desirable. And so in 1949, Congress passed a law that gave the cities money for urban renewal that was uh, to be used to clear these apartments out and replace them with something else. Well, the cities didn't want to replace them with single-family homes because they didn't think they'd get as much tax revenue for the single-family homes. So for the most part, the single cities were replacing them with high-rise apartments with elevators. In, 19, in the 1930s, there was a, a crazy architect from Switzerland named, who named, called himself Le Corbusier, which I think means the crow. And uh, he uh, thought that everybody should live in high-rise apartments. I don't know why he thought that, because he himself never lived in a high-rise apartment. He lived in low-rise. But... Uh, he thought cities should build high-rise apartments. So the urban planning fad of the 1950s was to build high-rise apartments, not just in American cities, but all over the world. You go to South Korea, and the cities there, all of them have high-rise apartments. You go to Japan, you go to China, you go to Russia, you go to Paris, you know, you go to cities everywhere, you find all these high-rise apartments. They were all inspired by this kooky architect named Le Corbusier, who thought people should live in a way that he himself didn't want to live. So here comes Jane Jacobs. They want to tear down her apartment building and put in a high rise. And she says, urban planners don't understand how cities work. Well, she was right about that. Urban planners don't understand how cities work. But then she went on to say something that was totally wrong, which was that she, Jane Jacobs, understood how cities work. And the way she described an ideal city was you had five-story apartment buildings. And with all this density, the ground floor would be shop, and people would entertain their guests out on the street because their apart. She didn't say this. Apartments were so small there was no room for entertaining guests. So you'd entertain the guests out on the streets. So you'd have people playing out on the streets. They'd be barbecuing out on the streets. They'd be shopping out on the streets because the shops are out on the streets. So there wouldn't be any crime because everybody would be able to see everything that was going on because they'd all be down on the streets all the time. You'd have these lively streets. It'd be so exciting to live in them. It'd be a wonderful place to live. And that's what a real city was like. She didn't understand that what she was describing was an artifact from the 1880s that people were moving out of as rapidly as they could. That despite her claims, they did have high crime rate. The People didn't want to live in buildings, so they had to climb up to five stories, you know, four, four or five stories on stairs to get to the, their apartments if they were moving out. She herself didn't live in a five-story building. She lived in a three-story building. I don't know if she lived on the second floor or the third floor. I suspect her apartment was probably on both floors because she was well-to-do. Her husband had a good job. She got a good job. They lived in this three-story building. There was a shop on the ground floor, and they had to walk up, I think, one floor to get to the main part of their apartment. So she didn't understand what it was like having to walk up three, four, and five flights of stairs to get to 
you know, apartments on the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors. Doubly ironic, in 1968, her son decides to dodge the draft because he didn't believe in the war in Vietnam. So he moved to Canada. She decided to move to Canada with him. And she made so much money selling her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, that she bought a single family home in Canada. She didn't live in a mid-rise apartment and she moved to a single family home. And yet the urban planners who were young in the 1960s and becoming dominant in the 1990s, who had read her book, said, yes, we were wrong to try to force people to live in high-rise apartments. We should instead try to force people to live in five-story apartments like the apartments they described that she described in The Death and Life of Great American Cities, like the apartments in Greenwich Village. So instead of saying, all right, let's build some of these five-story apartments in the inner cities in Portland and Denver and Seattle. They said, let's build these five-story apartments everywhere. Let's build them in the suburbs. Let's build them in rural areas. Let's build them everywhere. Uh, all urbanites should live in these five-story apartment buildings. And so we're seeing them spring up all over the place. Most of them are subsidized because, as I say, 80% of Americans want to live in single-family homes, not in apartments. We even had an urban planner uh, write a paper that was very popular in the urban planning profession that said, by the year 2025, and he wrote this in about 2002 or something, by the year 2025, people aren't going to want to live in single-family homes anymore, and we're going to have a surplus of 22 million single-family homes in the suburbs. The suburbs are going to turn into slums because everybody living in those suburbs are going to have moved into apartments in downtown. And so what urban planners should do today is get ahead of the situation by getting their cities to build more apartments, building more apartments in the suburbs, replace these icky single-family homes that people won't want to live in so that we won't have a shortage of apartments when people want them. Well, of course, we're, what, you know, two years away from 2025. We have people moving away from cities as fast as they can. Before the pandemic, where there were polls that showed that 40% of people who were living in dense cities wanted to move to suburbs or rural areas. And we had the same polls showed that more people wanted to live in suburbs than, than actually lived in them. And that was in 2018. And then the pandemic comes along and people just flee these dense cities. You know, the populations of San Francisco and New York and others, you know, Portland and Seattle, they're all declining and the populations of their suburbs, some cases are growing. The populations of small towns, Boise, Idaho is the fastest growing city in the country. You know, uh, the guy was just totally wrong. And yet we have suffered for two decades under urban planners who have tried to force these ideas on cities uh, by subsidizing, by taxing people, and then subsidizing these high-density apartments that people don't really want to live in. Randall, talking about the pandemic, how has that changed or affected your outlook on urban planning or on where people want to live? Or do you have the same critiques of the subsidies of suburban living or... All the pandemic has done is reinforce the ideas I already had. A pandemic doesn't really change things. It, what it does is it reinforces trends that are already happening. We already had a trend where people were buying cars and stopping to use transit. Transit ridership declined every year from 2014 to 2018. 
recovered slightly in 2019, but not much. Most cities still decline. Uh, about 45% of our transit takes place in New York City. And what happened was it grew in New York City in 2019. It's still declined almost everywhere else, but the growth in New York City uh, overcame the decline everywhere else. But basically, people were still buying cars. Uh, gas prices dropped in 2014, and that just killed transit everywhere except New York City. Um, and then we have the trend to living in suburbs. We have the trend of wanting to live in single-family homes. As soon as people can afford to do so, they would buy a car, and then they could live out in the suburbs where they didn't have to be in a lot of congestion, where they didn't have to deal with crime, where they didn't have to deal with pollution and, and things like that. And all the pandemic did is it reinforced all those things. Before the pandemic, you might have thought everybody who wanted to move to the suburbs had already done so. But no, it turns out a lot more people wanted to move to the suburbs. But by the pandemic, allowed more people to work at home. And uh, that led more people to say, OK, now I can move to the suburbs or before I couldn't because I was required to work in an office that was too far away from the place I wanted to live in in the suburbs. So we now have people who maybe work in an office one day a week, but live 100 miles away from that office. And, you know, instead of driving 20 miles five days a week, they're driving 100 miles one day a week each way and uh, uh, living far, far away from the density that urban planners had made for them. Randall, so the pandemic there? didn't change my views. It just reinforced them. What is your solution for the urban cores that are the skyscrapers of New York and the developers that built up that infrastructure? What are they supposed to do with these? Remote work is a challenge for them. Um, I think, you know, the government shouldn't do anything. I think the, the developers are going to have to figure it out for themselves. The owners are going to have to figure out for themselves what to do with those offices. Uh, solution number one is to find lower valued tenants. You know, they have what they call class A offices and class B offices. And, you know, class A offices attract companies like Chase Manhattan and Wells Fargo. And class B attracts, you know, lower rung companies. Then you have class C that attracts nonprofit groups and uh, uh, flea markets and antique stores and things like that. So. Uh, they're gonna. The owners of these office buildings are gonna have to accept a lower class of tenants. Now, you hear proposals to convert office buildings to apartments, and I think uh, the Biden administration just approved a bill to offer that's going to offer money to developers to convert uh, office buildings to apartments. The problem is. You look at the way plumbing is set up in an, in an apartment building, every single uh, apartment has to have plumbing for kitchen and bathrooms. And you look at the way plumbing is set up in an, in an office building, they put the plumbing in this core of the building where the restrooms are, and the outer reaches of the building have no plumbing at all. So it's going to be very expensive to change office buildings into apartment buildings. And really, it's cheaper to build single-family homes than it is to build apartments. And it's probably cheaper to build single-family homes 
than it is to convert offices to apartment buildings. If you didn't have urban growth boundaries around cities, you're you're not going to convert offices to apartments because people aren't going to be willing to pay that extra cost of living in an apartment. Um, if you live in a place that does have urban growth boundaries, you've driven up the cost of single-family homes to be two to five times greater than it ought to be. Then maybe you'll be able to justify converting uh, offices to apartments, economically justify it. But that's yeah, but, only because you've distorted the housing market totally, rid of those distortions. Like you said, it's still the triangle, the iron triangle, because the developers are getting subsidies for their losses instead of just taking the loss and finding Class C tenants. Well, it, you know, that's going to happen in some places. But even with the subsidies, I don't think you're going to see a lot of apartment conversions in Houston or Dallas or Atlanta or Omaha or Raleigh places where uh, you don't have urban growth boundaries. And so housing is still pretty affordable. Single family housing is still pretty affordable. You know, the new urbanists like to ask people, would you rather live in a in an apartment where you're uh, within walking distance of coffee shops and, and grocery stores and, and your work? Or would you rather live in a single family home where you have to drive everywhere you go? Everywhere you go? And a lot of people will say the apartment. But if you ask the question honestly, you'd say, would you rather live in a 1,000-square-foot apartment that costs $400,000 that's within walking distance of a limited selection, high-priced grocery store and a coffee shop? Or would you rather live in a 2,000-square-foot single-family home on a large lot that's within easy driving distance of multiple grocery stores that are competing hard for your business both on price and on a wide, having a wide selection of goods to sell you, uh, and there's not much congestion because you live in a low-density area. Well, you asked a question that way, and you mentioned that your 2,000-square-foot house only costs $200,000, whereas the 1,000-square-foot apartment costs $400,000. Even without the cost, you're going to find people a lot more people saying they want the, the single-family home, and when you add in the cost, you know, the preference for single-family homes just zoomed upward. So uh, in Houston, you're not going to see a lot of conversions. You'll probably see a bunch of conversions in San Francisco. But do people really want to live that way? You know, I think people are being forced to live that way. And I don't like the fact that planners are getting away with forcing people to live in ways they don't want to live. What are your thoughts? I think you're a proponent of autonomous vehicles as an alternative to public infrastructure and public transport. Could you expand on that? Well, I'm not so much a proponent as I see that's the wave of the future. So we see cities like Seattle spending gobs of money. I mean, like Seattle's got spending like $90 billion on light rail when autonomous vehicles, once they're applied to Seattle, are going to be just... To, destroy light rail as a mode of transportation. Who's going to want to ride light rail when you're going to be susceptible to diseases that you can catch from other people on the train? There's going to be crime on the train, uh, and it only goes when the rail is scheduled, not when you want to go, and it only goes rail where that we've spent billions of dollars building the rail lines and not where you want to go. Whereas you can call up an autonomous vehicle, have it come to your door, take you to your door, 
and it's going to cost you probably not much more, maybe even less than the, when you count all the subsidies, it's certainly going to cost less than the light rail. So it's going to happen. I mean, it's happened in San Francisco. Waymo has just announced that they're serving the entire Phoenix metropolitan area now, which is 550 square miles. Uh, Cruise is shut down in San Francisco temporarily in response to calls because there was one accident. But the data show that even as primitive as it is today, we've the the autonomous vehicles that have traveled millions and millions of miles have only had about one fifth as many accidents per million miles they travel as human driven vehicles. The pressure is coming from the taxi drivers. The truck drivers, uh, you know, the people whose jobs are going to be lost when they're replaced by autonomous vehicle. And they're the ones who are putting pressure on in California to try to kill autonomous vehicles in San Francisco. But it's going to happen. And since it is going to happen, we shouldn't be spending money on these 19th century forms of rail transportation that are slow and expensive and don't go where people want to go. Talking about international frameworks, you travel, you know, you went to Switzerland and you're going to Canada and you're a fan of rail. Where can Americans learn who's doing planning right? Who's letting, you know, is it Singapore? Is it Tokyo? Where's the most ideal framework for development, in your opinion, meeting the needs of this civilian, the government? And just where do you find that balance? Houston. Houston is the closest I can come to the ideal. Houston has no zoning. Uh, Texas counties are not allowed to zone. And so Houston is surrounded by lots of, by some suburban cities that are incorporated. The biggest one is Pasadena. They don't have any zoning. Other incorporated cities around Houston do have zoning. But what happens is the developments take place in unincorporated areas. The developers build houses that people want. They build homes for the market. They do build some multifamily, but they build mostly single family. And then the, uh, these developed areas then get annexed into the suburbs, and the suburbs then sometimes apply zoning. Uh, uh, Sugarland is one example of that. All, almost all of Sugarland was built in unincorporated areas and then annexed into the city. Even the city hall was built when it was unincorporated, and then they annexed it into the incorporated area. So the zoning only came after it was built. And so the developers were able to build the kind of houses that people wanted. And one of the things that developers found is that when you, if you're going to buy a single-family home, you want to have some assurance that nobody's going to put in a gravel pit or a meat packing factory or a uh, you know, a brick factory or something like that right next door to you. And so the developers did something that was like zoning. They put protective covenants on the properties. They said, all the homes in this neighborhood have to be a certain size. All the homes in this neighborhood have to be a certain size or whatever. And the lots have to be a certain size and so on. And what happens is when you do that, if you're a developer, you don't get more money from your lots, but they sell a lot faster. It doesn't increase the cost. There's no cost of putting these covenants on, but they sell a lot faster. These covenants were actually developed decades before zoning. And they were so successful that zoning was 
invented by cities to apply to existing single family neighborhoods to increase home ownership. Home ownership rates went from about 15% in, in cities in 1890 to uh, over 50% by 1960 uh, because people had the assurance that if they bought a home, it wasn't going to be degraded in use because the next door neighbor decided to put in something that was incompatible, whether it was zoning or protective covenants. So Houston has protective covenants in all these suburban developments. And these covenants are flexible. If uh, a developer says, look, your neighborhood has these covenants in and they're incompatible with the development I want to put in, but I think my development will sell really well, I'll pay you to change your covenants. And, and some neighborhoods have agreed to do that so that the developers can put in something that they think is more marketable than the kind of housing that's in that neighborhood. And people's tastes change, so these kinds of things do happen over time. Now, another thing that's happened is that some of the suburban counties around Houston have toll road authorities, and they are funded exclusively out of their tolls. They build roads rather economically. They build freeways that cost about $5 million a lane mile. And they build these freeways to get from the suburban communities that are being built by developers who are using protective covenants to get from these suburban neighborhoods to uh, downtown Houston. So Fort Bend County, for example, has several freeways that is built exclusively with toll roads that are paid for solely out of tolls. They don't get any gas taxes. They don't get any tax dollars. And I consider these to be very successful. Now, nobody is perfect. Houston, after voting down light rail a couple of times, they managed to persuade them that voters that if they built light rail, it would uh, relieve congestion. And so they ended up building some light rail lines that, to me, have been total disasters. Transit ridership in Houston was growing before they started building the light rail. It's now lower than it was in the last couple of years before light rail opened uh, because they spent so much money on the light rail, they ended up cutting back on their bus service, and you lost more bus riders than you gained rail riders. That's a pattern we've seen in Los Angeles and St. Louis and uh, Sacramento and cities all over the country. That you build rail and you lose riders because you end up uh, having fewer rider, fewer bus riders than you gain rail riders. But overall, despite that quirk, the light rail problem in Houston, uh, I say Houston is the place you should go to if you want to find out how cities could work without a lot of government plans. As an environmentalist, you have a model called incentive-based conservation. Could you just summarize that for people and how you think market reactions can help secure environmental rights and whatnot? Well, I developed uh, those ideas back when I was working on forest issues. And the Forest Service and other agencies were doing a lot of clear-cutting. That clear-cutting damaged wildlife habitat. It reduced recreation values because recreationists like to, the most valuable recreation was recreation in areas where that were wild and where you had some solitude from other people and from big cities and from roads and things like that. And so the Forest Service was eagerly building roads, cutting down trees, uh, damaging watersheds, damaging fisheries, damaging wildlife habitats. The, the best fisheries in Oregon, for example, are in areas that have no roads uh, and that have had no logging, um, the best salmon fisheries. So I said the 
uh, I looked at, after years of looking at Forest Service data, uh, uh, something hit me one day, uh, and that was that the reason why the Forest Service was doing this is because Congress had inadvertently designed their budget to reward the Forest Service for losing money on environmentally destructive activities and to literally penalize the Forest Service for either making money or doing environmentally benign activities, activities that were not bad for the environment. And certainly they didn't reward them for doing environmentally good activities. And so the Forest Service was merely following its incentive. I wrote a whole book about this. It was called Reforming the Forest Service. It came out in 1988. In 1989, the Forest Service sold 11 billion board feet of timber. Started declining in 1990. By 19, by 2001, it had fallen to uh, 1.5 billion board feet of timber. It had fallen by 85%. And people in the Forest Service came to me and said, we read your book. And we thought you were accusing us of being corrupt. And then we, this guy said, the guy told me, I re- suddenly realized last week I had signed off on a timber sale so I could get a bigger budget. And they stopped doing that. They stopped saying, they said, we don't want to be motivated by our budget to do these bad things anymore. And so they stopped these environmentally destructive timber sales. I didn't think that was going to happen. I thought we would have to change their incentives. So when I talked about incentive-based conservation, I said, we should charge recreation fees. We should charge fees, bigger fees for fishing and hunting. Right now, when you fish and hunt, technically, under federal law or under U.S. law, the animals you fish and hunt are owned by the states. But if you hunt on national forests, the land you're hunting on is owned by the federal government. So you right now, you pay a hunting fee to the state, but you don't pay anything to the federal government. I said you should also have to pay a fee to the federal government to hunt on federal land or fish on federal land. If you did that, I pointed out, then private landowners would also be able to charge fees, and you'd see both federal and private landowners modifying their activities so that they would enhance wildlife habitat, enhance fisheries, and uh, enhance recreation opportunities We'd have more recreation, not less, if we were willing to pay fees. And so my solution to the forest problems was to charge uh, recreation fees to balance the fees from timber cutting and grazing and mining. And the Forest Service's own numbers showed that recreation was worth more than all all the other activities combined. So uh, they would make a pretty good balance. I got quite a few environmentalists supporting this, but then in the in the mid 1990s, the environmental movement kind of got taken over by people who believed in top down planning. They believed that uh, the president should make all the decisions for every single timber sale, and if a timber sale didn't meet their approval, they they literally went to the president of the United States and got him to call up the district, not him, but one of his aides, to call up the district ranger and say, don't do that timber sale. It drove the Forest Service bureaucracy nuts because all these people in the administration in the White House were overruling them. Uh, And uh, so incentive-based conservation didn't get very far. Now we're seeing some people in the environmental movement going back and recognizing that 
this top-down planning doesn't work very well. And uh, they're beginning to look at these ideas again. Randall, as you had that interview with the Grassroots uh, Initiative here in Hawaii discussing housing policy, what's your relationship with them? And my other question is, do you have an opinion on vacancy taxes for Hawaii or other places? All right. Well, you're talking about the Grassroots, not plural, but Root Institute. Uh, and they're a state-based think tank in Hawaii. And I work with state-based think tanks all over the country. I work uh, recently, I've done work for state-based think tanks in North Carolina, Arizona, Oregon, Colorado, uh, uh, a lot of different states, and Hawaii. And uh, some of them have hired me to do some work. Some of them just asked me to uh, comment on in Zoom meetings or in podcasts or radio interviews or whatever. Uh, but the Grassroots Institute is one of a great network of state-based think tanks that I'm happy to be working with and for uh, uh, as much as I can. Even when I worked for the Cato Institute, which is a, a national think tank in Washington, D.C., I really saw my job as being a liaison from Cato to these state-based think tanks because most people in Cato were working on national or international issues. I was one of the few in Cato who was working on local issues like housing or uh, uh, transportation issues. And uh, so I've always had a good relationship with the Grassroot Institute. Uh, the director uh, and their, their staff are, are great people, and they do good work on housing and a lot of other issues in, in Hawaii. And then what are your thoughts? I mean, you advocated for a voucher model, just to summarize that, for meeting affordable housing. And then if you have any thoughts on vacancy taxes, many people want to apply uh, vacancy tax in Hawaii for empty units or empty second homes or... I'm just curious if you've studied that at all. Well, the Hawaii was the first state in the country to try to restrict the development of single-family homes. Uh, and it's, it's such an irony because in the 1950s, most of the land in Hawaii was owned by the five companies, you know, Dole and so on, and the, the Bishop Estate. And if you wanted to own your own home in Hawaii, often you couldn't find land to own it on. Like something like 99% of the land was owned by one of these six entities. And so you would have to lease land from one of these entities and build your home on it. And the five companies were agricultural companies, and they weren't interested in leasing land for homes. They wanted to grow pineapple and uh, you know sugar cane and other crops on their land. And so you had this huge housing crisis in Hawaii in, 19, in the late 1950s. And the, at the time, in the early 1950s, Hawaii's legislature, the territorial legislature, was run by Republicans. And they were uh, very sympathetic to the five companies, and they weren't sympathetic to the people who needed housing. Well, in the late 1950s, the Democrats took over, and they took over on a promise of land reform. They promised that they would force the five companies and the Bishop Estate, perhaps, to sell some of their land to, uh, to use for housing so that people could find affordable housing. Well, the Democrats won, and in 1961, they passed their land reform cap package and it did exactly the opposite of what they promised. Instead of requiring the companies to sell the land, 
they declared all the urban, all the rural land in the state, most of which was owned by these five companies, they declared that land off limits to developments. They said the only land you could develop was urban land. This story is told by a great book called Land and Power in Hawaii. I recommend it to all your listeners if, if they're from Hawaii. And uh, what the Democrats discovered was that as legislators, they could make exceptions for themselves. And so if you're a developer and you wanted to develop some land, you went to a state legislator and you made that legislator a partner in your development. The partner would then get the state to override the rules that had been passed by the state in response to the law you passed. So that you could have your land developed or your developer partner's land development developed and you'd make all this money. And so it became uh, uh, quite a corrupt system. And that's a system that governs Hawaii to this day. Only about 14 percent of the land in Hawaii has been developed. There's lots of land. Even in Oahu, most of the land is still undeveloped. It's rural land that could be developed. And the real irony is, supposedly, the 1961 law that reserved all these rural areas were supposed to protect the agricultural industry. And yet, the farm industry has practically died in Hawaii. Why? Because the farmers can't afford to hire farm laborers and pay them enough money for those laborers to find housing and still produce pineapple and sugarcane and other produce that's competitive with farms in Costa Rica and Fuji and other places that haven't restricted housing. And so we've destroyed more than 80% of the farm industry in Hawaii. just since 1982, it's been 80%. So since 1961, it's been more than 80%. In order to preserve the farmlands, we had to destroy the farms. That, to me, is a very sad commentary on what's happened in housing. Now, since housing has gotten expensive, we've come up with all these wacko ideas to make housing that's affordable. One wacko idea is build high-density housing, build more apartments. Well, it turns out apartments cost twice as much per square foot to build as single-family homes, maybe more than twice as much if it's really tall, partly because you have to put in elevators. If you're building taller than two or three stories, you have to put in elevators, and they're really expensive, more steel, more concrete. It just makes housing a lot more expensive, so you're not building affordable housing when you build apartments. And yet we have all these subsidies that we're throwing at developers that are inefficiently building expensive housing, but it's subsidized housing, and so then they can rent it at lower rates. Then we come up with crazy ideas like, oh, Airbnb is using up all the housing. Well, if we didn't have these restrictions on housing, we could build more housing, and there'd be enough housing for Airbnb, there'd be enough housing for vacation homes, and there'd be enough housing for year-round residents. It's only because of the land use laws that restrict housing restrict new development that's made housing expensive. So the number one priority of anybody who cares about affordable housing should be to abolish the state land use laws, not just modify them to increase the amount of urban land, but totally abolish them 
We'd see a lot more development on Oahu. We'd see a tiny bit more development on the other islands, not much. Most of the land that's rural on the other islands would stay rural. At least half the land on Oahu that's rural would stay rural. Probably half of Oahu would stay rural, but there'd be a lot more development and housing would get to be a lot more affordable. And then what are your thoughts uh, on the vacancy taxes that people want to implement? Again, you're attacking the wrong uh, problem. You're attacking a symptom, not the real problem. The problem is the land use law. And when you attack symptoms, you're not solving problems. It's like building affordable housing. Affordable housing is subsidized housing for low-income people. Housing affordability is a measure of how much housing costs for everybody. Housing shouldn't cost more than 30% of your income. But housing in Hawaii, especially Oahu, is costing a lot of people 50% or more of their income. So that means instead of fixing the problem, we're spending more and more money, uh, tax dollars, subsidizing affordable housing because so many more people are, are spending more than 30% of their incomes on housing. Uh, stop, stop dealing with the symptoms and start dealing with the problems if you want to solve the problems. If all you want to do is look good, if you're a politician and you want to look good, then you deal with symptoms. And that's one of the problems with our economy is we've We've made government so big, we've made the economy so complicated that people don't realize that the solutions that politicians come up with are only dealing with symptoms because it's easier for them to deal with the symptoms than it is to deal with the problems themselves because uh, there's so many interest groups that benefit from creating problems. One of the beneficiaries from creating the housing affordability crisis are the developers who make money from the subsidy. So. We've got this huge affordable housing industrial complex that gets money from taxpayers to build expensive housing that they then rent out at, afford at subsidized rates. And the developers make contributions to the politicians who appropriate the money for these funds. And, and Hawaii probably has a dozen different affordable housing funds. I know Portland has a dozen different affordable housing funds that... Uh, our federal, state, and local funds that are all used uh, to subsidize these developments that are really not affordable. The developers are making money from them, and a few people are getting to live in cheaper housing because of them. And then, Randall, my last question is, what are you optimistic about right now? Uh, you have a lot of critiques of government and you know incentives, but I'm curious what you're optimistic about. It's hard to be optimistic today when you live in a country where one party thinks that they have unlimited purse strings and they can spend as much as they want on anything they want, and the other party is mainly oriented towards uh, a socially conservative agenda that focuses on uh, restricting people's personal rights as much as they can, and and the middle of the road, which is, let's have freedom of personal rights, and let's also have economic freedom where we're not taxing people to death uh, and not restricting how people can use land and so on and so forth. That, to me, is a middle-of-the-road position, and yet uh, people aren't talking about that anymore uh, like they used to be. Uh, if I'm optimistic about anything, it's maybe that the leader of one party will get convicted and the leader of the other party will 
become so senile that he won't run for office anymore. And then, Randall, how can people find you? What's the best way for people who have more? Uh, your policy briefs are very insightful. And Well, my blog is called The Anti-Planner. Just Google Anti-Planner or use DuckDuckGo or whatever your per- preference is to find Anti-Planner. I'm the first thing on the list. Uh, technically, it's ti.org. Ti is Institute.org slash Anti-Planner. Thoreau Institute, uh, I started many years ago. Uh, Henry David Thoreau believed in wildness as the preservation of the world, and that government is best that governs least. So to me, Thoreau is the ideal combination of environmental and small government values. And so ti.org is uh, my organization. Great. Uh, Randall, I'll give you the last word. Anything else you want to share? Well, uh, you mentioned in the policy briefs. Uh, if you go to ti.org slash anti-planner, I, I post almost every weekday. But if you go up to the upper right-hand corner, it says special features. And one of them is policy briefs. I've got 150 policy briefs. They're average about four pages long on all kinds of different issues, wildfire, uh, housing, transit, highways, and so on and so forth. You also find uh, the education of an iconoclast, which is my memoirs of 50 years of work in in these fields. Uh, and then you can also find up on the menus above, there's uh, uh, Cato Institute, Thoreau Institute, and American Dream Coalition. Uh, I've written papers for all these organizations. Uh, I think I've written five or six papers for the Thoreau Institute just this year alone. So, uh, you can see all my latest papers. Those papers tend to be about 10,000 words long, whereas the policy briefs are only a couple thousand words long and are a good introduction to all these issues. There's at least one policy brief on the Honolulu Rail, by the way. Great. Well, Randall, I really appreciate your time notes as well. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs>